Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Programme. My name is Mark Pettican. I'm the President of Payments at Barclays Payments. And I'm really delighted to be joined by our host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. And it was uh, a recommendation from Anita Lou Harvey when I said, look, I'm looking for CEOs and people who are, uh, I think the word is humility, humanity, bit of humour, bit of heart. And she said, look, the person I know who's got the greatest authenticity is Mark. And so, Mark, here we are. Uh, it's been great yeah. ch chatting with you beforehand. We've had a couple of chats. I've really enjoyed that. Um, tell us a bit more about what you're, you're doing at the moment and, and, and what your job involves as a CEO, uh, or rather president of Barclays Payments. Uh, but, but tell us a bit more about that. And then we're going to go back to uh, childhood and what shapes the man we're meeting today. Sure, no problem. And uh, it was very gracious of Anita. Uh, I suspect one day I may, may end up working for, for her. So uh, yeah, that was, it was very kind of her. I was very touched by it. And um, yeah, so I'm president uh, of Barclays Payments. Uh, what does that, that mean? Uh, I run all of the commercial activity uh, for our acquiring, our payment gateways, our T&E cards, our corporate, corporate cards, uh, and what we call B2B payments. So I have responsibilities across all of our product lines uh, and across all of our customer segments. So from small businesses, right the way through to large corporates. And I was just telling you a moment ago about the uh, getting back out of lockdown and uh, how, uh, our, how our hairdressers in particular have uh, you know, been processing a lot of payments over the last week, which is not a surprise. It was quite remarkable, actually, because we're recording this now, although it's going out later on the 26th of April. We're recording it just after the 12th of April when it started. And, and what you were saying to me, just that sudden uptick is very encouraging. But um, as my scientist friends tell me, we're not out of the woods yet at all. And whether it be, you know, outbreaks of the Brazilian variant in London or other things that are going on, we, we've just got to be prepared for having to swing back into maybe another lockdown, who knows, even though we hoping for the best, you've got to prepare for the worst. Yeah, um, it's been a difficult time for both our yeah, customers and our colleagues. So uh, yeah, Monday yeah, was an important day. It, well, I'm, I'm so pleased uh, for, for everybody and, and for, for you guys that you can respond to that. And uh, we were chatting earlier and we're going to go into that story that you were suggesting telling me. I think that was very good because people are giving great feedback on Brian Hayworth, who was episode 147. And Brian was talking about a mental health challenge that he had where he ended up in the Priory, um, uh, but was very open about the fact he's recovered from it and been through it. So people have really appreciated the openness and honesty. So please just tell the whole story. I think it's, it's very important. It's part of your authenticity. So take, take me back from what you're doing now to the young Mark Pedican. Um, who shaped you? Who, who influenced you? Where, where do your sort of foundational values come in? Oh, yes. I mean, that's a long way back now. I'm feeling a bit old these days. Um, <laughs> yeah, so look, I was born and bred in northwest London. Uh, started life in the sort of Rice Slip area uh, and then uh, moved over towards the Watford area. Uh, had son to uh, uh, a gentleman in the Royal Mail. My father was in the Royal Mail. Mum was a seamstress. Um, 
uh, stay at home me seamstress though as soon as me and my brother came along uh, there's two of us uh, you know me and my my younger brother who's four years younger than me um, look I had a I had a very happy upbringing I feel very blessed with that regard you know hard working family um, good values uh, used to sit around the dinner table and talk about a whole manner of things whether it be sports whether it be politics um, you know, but I, I generally have nothing but happiness when I look back over my sort of childhood, certainly from a family community perspective. Um, we were highly competitive. We still are to this day, and I'm sure we'll come out in this conversation. But I think, look, what, you know, we were, we were very lucky, both my brother and I. My brother's gone on to be pretty successful in a different, completely different field. Uh, you know, and I think we were, we were very nurtured through our, through our young lives. Um, you know, now we're trying to repay that back to our parents by doing what we can for them. Um, interesting enough, and I know we spoke about it previously, my sort of one thing of my childhood, I was very small, which is, um, is interesting because I'm six foot two now. Um, so most of my school life, I was quite, quite a small guy, quite, quite shy in some regards. Mm. Um, I used to do drama and go to drama school as well. Um, and so what was quite interesting, I was very... Um, I was quite shy of being myself, but I was I sort of came to life when I was on stage playing the part of somebody else. And I think that's something that I'm sure we'll get into mentors and things that have happened in my career. But but probably that's quite a pivotal moment, me going to drama school and being used to playing the part of somebody else. Uh, I think if you'd spoken to me in my childhood of what I would get to, I don't think I'd have believed you. I, yeah. I probably had relatively lower ambitions at that point in my in my life. Um, and it's definitely been shaped over the last, you know, 25, 30 years of corporate life. Yeah. And, and two things have come up from that. Fascinating. One of the, your, your, the other CEOs who we've had on the series, Martin Williams, is the CEO of Gaucho and M Restaurants. And uh, you'd enjoy his company. He, he's uh, also on the, the CEOs club that uh, you're, you're part of. Uh, but he's so interesting in that he did went through acting school. And he said, you know, he learned how to play the part of a bigger character than himself. You almost yeah. occupy, you know, this, this, this big bubble, this, you come into a room with this huge, or if you're trying to play someone who's small and beaten up and on the street, you, you shrivel yourself up and you make yourself smaller. Uh, I even find this with Caroline Goida, my, my voice uh, coach, that, that, you know, just to, to stand when you're uh, speaking and to, and to, and to speak from, from within uh and let your your voice come out so you clearly learned some of those skills so even though you were small you you projected it now now you're big enough you don't have to you, you occupy the yeah. room when you come into it don't you yeah and no, i was happy being in midsummer's night stream i think if you'd asked me to stand up as myself and recite something i was i was definitely less confident through those those school years but yeah look my child was very um very happy one i think one of the things you know actually that does stick in my mind i was pretty entrepreneurial I never, I never was without a few quid in my pocket. Um, I used to have, I think I had two or three paper rounds running in succession. Uh, I built myself a little car cleaning business. I used to clean a bunch of cars bi-weekly. Um, I used to go and collect golf balls from the, the, the local golf club and sell them back to the, to the golf club. And I had a period of time when I was collecting glasses in pubs and working men clubs and things like that. And so... Uh, I always had that hard work ethic and it's something now that, you know, when I look back over my career, I've never been afraid of, of a bit of hard work. Um, and I think that's definitely stayed with me and, and was clearly there at a very young age. And I think, you know, my parents obviously shaped that both of them being very hardworking. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. Napoleon said, uh, tell me a man or woman when they're 21, what was happening for them at that stage? And I'll tell you what their leader's like. What was going on for you when you were 21? Can you remember back then? What was the influential stage yeah, in your life? I, I joined um, I joined Barclays. Uh, I was in banking then rather than in payments. Uh, and I was probably still trying to work out where I wanted to go what I wanted to do um, uh, and actually I do remember a, a gentleman he was my office manager a guy called Tony Kershaw I remember one day he coming up to me and saying you'll be good at selling and I was like really he said yeah you've got the right personality you're good with people you are able to get the best out of people you'd be good in sales and I hadn't really given it thought and if I look back that conversation, you don't know it, was probably one of the most important conversations I ever had. Yeah. Uh, I ended up going into sales. I did relatively well. Uh, and then, so, you know, my career sort of went from strength to strength. Um, and so it's funny, I, I still remember sitting in the desk area that we were at when he had that conversation. And it was very left field at the time. It wasn't mm -hmm. where I expected the conversation or my career to head at that point in time. Yeah, it is so interesting. And in my own uh, review of the 147 podcast so far, one of the things I was saying that the message was when you're successful and you've achieved what you've done, as you do anyway, Mark, it's to send the lift back down. And, and he clearly at an early stage sent the lift down for you yeah. and said, this is what you can achieve. And, and when people believe in you, it's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very powerful. And, and from your early days then in Barclays, just in, in a, a nutshell, what are the, the different firms and places that you've worked uh, yeah, in I, and what, what did you learn from them? I've been really blessed. Um, you know, I've never felt the need to move on from the organisation. It has treated me very well, but it's given me loads of different experiences. And it's one of the things I talk to people about is just try something new, try something scary every day. Um, so I, I ran for quite a long time. I was in sales. Uh, I went and did a little bit of a product role for a while, but then gravitated back towards sales, business development, account management. I ended up being the, uh, the managing director of um, one of our divisions that was looking after acquiring customers. So think large supermarkets, airlines, travel agencies, et cetera. We were helping them accept, accept payments, yeah, card-based payments typically. So I was running a team of three to 400 uh, and I'd sort of grown that organically over time. I then started to really scratch an itch around, wanted to get into more general management. I knew that sort of sales, business development wasn't enough for me. Uh, and, and I know she's been mentioned previously on a, on a podcast, but my, my boss at the time was a lady called Paulette Rowe, who's a, a sensational leader herself. Uh, she's moved on from the organization now. And we then started having some sort of really, um, so direct conversations in terms of what next for me and where I wanted to go. Uh, I did actually look at an opportunity in South Africa for the group, but we just had our, uh, our first born. So uh, that didn't really become an option. Uh, and then we bought a technology company down in Fleet in Hampshire, a company called The Logic Group. Uh, it's a payment gateway. Um, very different. I was used to leading salespeople. And, and if you think about the culture of sales teams and the, the type of people you get in sales teams, this was a technology company, very different mindset, very different culture, very different people. Also small organization, wasn't a large bank. It was 180 people in a, in a, in a leafy suburb. And 
But because we had these conversations, when we made the acquisition, the, the CEO stepped down as part of the acquisition. Paulette immediately asked me to go and run that business. Um, and I'll be honest, I owe a lot because she took a chance. Uh, and, and we'll come on to another gentleman later, I'm sure. But, but they took a chance because uh, I didn't know technology back to front. I knew it reasonably well. I knew the industry really well. Um, but I'd never done general management really to that scale. Um, and so my job was to go in and integrate that into the, the mothership. Um, and you can imagine those two things, you know, got small entrepreneurial business, large bank, lots of control, governance compliance for good reason. And I had to kind of bring those two things together, those two cultures together. And I vividly remember the last meeting I had with Paulette before I uh, headed off down to, uh, to, to Fleet and I actually relocated down there left the family uh, back in the family home. And uh, she just looked at me, smiled and said, don't mess it up. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that, that well, I'm sure we'll talk about it. that was uh, an incredible journey for me. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my leadership style. I learned a lot about people and how you get the best out of people uh, and, and gain that connection. Um, and you know social cohesion and how you and you build that and that was a really big change for me and, and uh, I look back over my career it was a two year journey um, but actually I really look back on that with fondness because I learned a huge amount through that period. Yeah, uh, it, it it would have been the making of you, and and looking back at all the experience that you've had, there, there are high points uh, which we learn things from, happiest days. And also some darkest days where we also learn a lot from. Firstly, what was what was one of your proudest moments, happiest moments that you you had? Um, and then would you go into one of your darkest moments and what you learned from that? Yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, so, so sort of happiest moments, I guess, to sort of follow on from that journey. When I finished that that role, I was then asked to then take on the leadership of our commercial payment business. So that was, again, a very different role for me. I'd been used to helping customers accept payments. I knew how that landscape hung together. This was about going into the commercial issuing business where we, we help customers make payments. And I was asked to lead that organization. Um, and I think one of my proudest moments there was, one of the, the roles there was to really pivot the strategy of that organization. It had been around for 50 years. Um, tried, tested, was doing pretty well, revenues were, were strong, but we needed to, to move the business literally at right angles to, to enter in the world of B2B payments. And I think through my time there, I spent three years in that business, you know, we really began to gather some momentum, change the mindset of the team. You know, there was a, there was a history of what it had done and we were trying to change it culturally. And so I look back on that team in terms of not only changing the strategy, but the strength of the leadership team that I was able to build and have around me, it felt like we were really in, in sync. And if I think about sort of the strength of the leadership team and the sort of culture we created, to me, that's the, that, that was my strongest team to date. You know, yeah. I'm in a team now, it's a great team and, and look, we're, we're still a work in progress. But I think, you know, in terms of, of my history of my career, definitely that team was the greatest. Um, so I think that's my, my proudest moment is pivoting that business. My, my darkest moment in my career, and this is a little tough to talk about, but um, in that same business, uh, we, we unfortunately lost one of our directors uh, to suicide. Um, so sorry. 
to mental health issues. Um, and that was one of the toughest things I've ever had to deal with. And a number of colleagues around me who were an unbelievable support that, that got us through that. I, um, I remember taking the call. I, I remember the emptiness that sort of followed uh, and then suddenly realizing very short order I was the leader of that business and had to stand tall and had to help the colleagues get through it. And we then embarked on, um, you know, quite a roller coaster of emotions, you know, huge amount of communication you can imagine. But it also really taught me about how people compartmentalize things so differently and that somebody who compartmentalized it quite quickly and moved on had to be very respectful to somebody else who was, was grieving for a long period of time. Um, but again, it probably links back to my proudest moment, the way that team rallied and the family spirit that we had as a team to get us through that. And John, uh, who was his name, his legacy has lived on. Um, you know, we've even named awards after him. Um, but that was really tough from a leadership perspective because I was trying to deal with my own emotions, but had to be strong for, for everybody around. I'd never gone through anything like that at all and he was such a popular member of the team that it just came as a, as a huge shock to the, the whole organization um but i'm really proud of how the team handled it you know clearly it brought mental health really to the forefront in in all of our minds and obviously that's never even more important now in, in covid period where we know that mental health issues are on the rise and you know people dealing with operating like this has been pretty tough for the last 12 months um yeah. but, you know, i mean that would definitely be the darkest time I've had in my working career. No, I'm really sorry for you and your your colleagues and, and the loss of John. Just, I can't imagine what, what it was like. And and all I'd say is I, I'm coming across this a lot more with different CEOs, that they, they have got these kind of issues going on and that uh, mental health is a really vital area for people to deal with. I think CEOs have talked about four areas that they're focusing on, you know, uh, digitalization of their business, uh, ESG, diversity, equality and inclusion, uh, and then mental health. Um, those are the things that are, are front of mind for them. Um, wow. So from, from such um, a difficult time, but yet there was also many things that uh, the, the best of human behavior that comes out. And when yeah. times are tough, you see the best of people. Thinking back to lessons in your life, if you were to go back to when you were 16 to 18, that period of time, uh, now you've acquired all this wisdom from, you get uh, the wisdom from mistakes you make and experiences and things you've had. What bit of advice would you give the young Mark Pettikin if you went back and met yourself age 16 to 18, knowing what you know now, what would you tell him mattered or doesn't matter? And so other people with their young sons and daughters um, could listen to this. What doesn't matter is the odd failure, um, as long as you learn from it. And don't make the same mistake twice. But I think, you know, I, I probably spent a lot of my early career believing that you, you just couldn't fail at all. Probably comes from the competitive streak that, that runs it deep in my family. Um, but, you know, it, it's okay to learn from those experiences and, and actually failure sometimes is pretty good and you should just celebrate it. You know, sometimes you kind of want to screw it away and not talk about it, but actually celebrating the, the fails is as important as celebrating the successes. Um, the young Mark Pettikin, I one thing I would have definitely said 
is um, use mentors. Yeah. Um, my career has been undoubtedly shaped massively by the strength of the mentors that I've had through my career. Um, certainly line managers have helped me along the way. Don't get me wrong, I've, had to, I've been blessed with some amazing line managers, but I think mentors have had a disproportionate impact for me personally. I'd probably also say a um, bit more long-term planning. I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do, even through 25. You know, if you'd have said to me, Mark, what do you want to be doing by the time you're 30? I probably would have struggled to tell you what I wanted to do by the time I was 27. And now one of the things I do a lot when I talk to people, mentor, and I try to do a lot of mentoring now because I think people have been really gracious with their time with me. And therefore, I, I'm compelled to, to do the same for others. Um, I always ask the question to people, where, where do you want to be in 10 or 15 years time? And it's amazing how many people kind of look, look back at you quite, quite blankly um, and, and sort of thinking about the riverbank. You know, if, if Mark Pettigan is on the riverbank this side today, and Mark Pettigan 15 years time is on the riverbank over the water, and you've got a thousand stepping stones in front of you, how do you know the path you need to take um, if you don't know where you're heading to? And it's okay to kind of go laterally. You don't really want to go backwards in your career. And you never want to get to that stepping stone and feel you just can't get to the other side. So I always encourage people to, to try and think more longer term. And then the other thing I just say is try different things. You know, I, I, I was quite lucky. I've been lucky in my career that I've managed to sort of do different disciplines and therefore I picked up a, a set of skills. There's still a few gaps, but, you know, I'd, uh, I would definitely say be a bit braver and, Try, try different things. Really good. I, I love those advice that use of mentors, the long-term planning and try different things. Uh, and I'm reminded with the long-term planning uh, of, of advice I had from a great mentor to me, uh, the now General the Lord Dannett, uh, Richard Dannett, who was head of the army and uh, in the papers a lot, a very courageous, inspiring leader and a great, a great role model to me. He was my commanding officer. I was one of his, his four company commanders. And uh, we were in a wet wood waiting for Chinooks to come in, but it was raining, so the RAF weren't coming. And uh, the, the Navy were always coming. The Fleet Arm, my father was Fleet Arm. Whatever the weather, they'd come. They're used to being out in a storm. But for the Royal Air Force, I'm teasing my RAF friends that, that the sun had to be out. There were no clouds, and then they'd arrive. But anyway, so we were waiting in this wet wood in Germany for the Chinook to pick us up. We were tired and hungry. And uh, as, we, as we stood in our trench together side by side, uh, he said, Jonathan, what's, what's your life plan? I said, well, I, I don't know, really. I don't have a life plan. I forgot what age I was, sort of, uh, what, what age was I? Sort of 28, I think. I didn't really have a life plan. He said, you need to have a life plan. He said, you know why? I said, no. He said, because if you don't have a life plan, you end up in somebody else's life plan. Yeah. And he said, guess what they've got planned for you? And he went like this. He went, not very much, all right? It's yeah. just that job, how you can help them during your year or two with them to further their career, often, unfortunately. So sometimes you meet much bigger people and he was one of them. Uh, and, and a bit like the man who said, you get into sales, he gave me that belief in myself. And he also gave me some advice like, you know, don't worry too much about looking upwards, worry more about your peers sideways and looking, I was good looking downwards, but I was looking for the long lost father upwards uh, to some sort of role model type and, and it doesn't doesn't pay off look after your peers because they're the ones who'll sink you if you're a complete bastard and uh, so so competitive that you put them down to get yourself up 
Um, that's a great piece of advice, or three great pieces of advice. Let's go around the inspiring leadership compass, if we if we could, Mark. Beginning with MQ, moral intelligence or moral quotient, your foundational values and and the values of um, as president of Barclays Payments, that how they align between what you stand for and what you've uh, given your organisation as its foundational values. You probably haven't changed that much, but you will have tweaked. Uh, and what happens when you let your values slip and you and, and how do you get yourself back on track again yeah i mean we're um, i mean obviously as an organization and at the top of the house within barclays we have a, a set of, of values five values i think the good news is they all align to my own personal values which is a good thing i think if i think about my personal values though authenticity is right up there um don't try to be something you're not um be as authentic as you can. I know. I know that Anita spoke to you about it. One of my big things when I was running that technology company was floor walking every day. Um, get out, talk to people, take an interest, um, know something about each colleague, remember that thing about each colleague. So the next time you see them, you have the dialogue. Um, yeah, and, and and just coming across, you know, that you care. And, and I genuinely do care. And so being authentic and, and trying not to be something it, it, I'm not is, is hugely important to me. Um, we've got one in Barclays, which I actually really like, is stewardship. Yeah. And stewardship is basically leave something better than you found it. And I really like that. And, and somebody told me that, that, I can't remember who it was. I was talking to somebody and they said, don't ever forget, Mark, you only ever rent the job that you're in. I kind of thought, you're right. Yeah. And so your job is, I've just got to leave this role I'm in better than I found it. And so I really like stewardship. Um, other values to me, though, you know, teamship. Um, I've done a lot of work around teamship in the, in the teams that I've led and, and I've worked with, you know, people like yourself, coaches, et cetera, that have helped me achieve that. And the whole sort of idea of, of, of collaboration. Um, you know, I am totally of the mindset that, teams have to collaborate to be successful you you cannot have individuals in teams who have huge egos and it's all about them it's got to be about the team culture the team mentality you know i'm sure you've read it or seen it you know the the new zealand all blacks who have uh, i'll use the term no dickheads and apologies to your listeners um but that's absolutely right you know no one team should ever be you know, um, disruptive because of an ego of, of one individual. And so teamship's really important to me and that sort of social cohesion that, that we drive. And then another one just personally to me is loyalty, uh, both towards me and that I will give to others. You know, I'm, I'm a, a fiercely loyal person. If I say that I'll do something for you, I'll do it. Uh, I always stick to that, that word. Uh, and that means a lot both ways. You know, I expect the same from others. Yeah, and, and you talked earlier about uh, you and your brother being very competitive. And I, if I'm right in our conversation, you played rugby for the Saints. Was that right? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Were you a big fan of the Saints? Uh, well, I'm a Saints fan. Yeah, I never played. No, yeah. uh, I, uh, that is not something I did. Uh, a few of my colleagues will laugh at that uh, assumption. No, I was, I was, uh, I was, golf was my main thing. Right. Uh, that was, that was my passion. Uh, no, we're a big rugby family now, though. We live in Northamptonshire, so yeah, not the uh, rugby fans without living in 
in the town. So uh, yeah, my young my young boy plays for uh, Old North Antonians, uh, which oh, is yeah. a fantastic club. Um, but yeah, no, I I would love to have played, but uh, <laughs> afraid not. But it's that it's that spirit of enjoying sport and seeing competition and winning, but not winning at all costs, which comes on to nicely from from the integrity and your values onto what gives your life meaning and purpose. PQ is the next one we talk about. Um, your sort of calling, your vocation. What what would you say gives your life meaning and purpose, Mark? I mean, look personally my family yeah um yeah i'm blessed with two young children a boy and a girl uh amazing wife and family's everything you know i think that's that's why i'm here that's why uh i think i was created uh, from a from a from a corporate perspective um I, I mean i genuinely like seeing others flourish you know i i I enjoy helping others to exceed their own goals and ambitions long term. So that's definitely one thing that gets me up in the morning. Uh, look, I like winning. Uh, high, you know, as I said, highly competitive. So I've typically been in commercial roles and therefore driven, you know, to drive for, for revenue, uh, winning a winning a client, etc. And I'm a, I'm a massive client guy. I love meeting customers. That's where I get my energy. Um, yeah. You know, we have to do a lot of internal meetings, as you would, as you would imagine, in, in our organisation. Lots of control, governance, compliance, which is absolute must. Um, but I really get my energy when I'm out seeing customers. Yeah. And the, the, the beauty of that in my organisation is we have such a diversity of a client base that you get to learn so much around every industry. You know, I might be talking to a, a construction company one day, a marketplace the next, a retailer the next. And so you get to know a little bit about most sectors, which is enjoyable. Uh, and I, I enjoy watching our customers do well. So, um, yeah, well, you, you talk about bringing out the best in, in the whole world of sales and competitiveness. Of course, uh, having goals is very important, but goal obsession, where you know, the end justifies the means. We've seen cases in supermarkets that remain nameless where they've they've distorted their sales figures or whatever it is, or pushed things into the next year. And sometimes um, I'm seeing people who are desperate to sell and to get the right numbers and hit their bonuses, doing whatever they can to achieve that. And that was part of why things got so bad in financial services in 2008 with the selling of CDOs and swaps and all sorts of things that people were doing. What, what's your view on how you make sure that, that people are acting both with moral integrity and a sense of purpose and focus, but, but they're not going off, off the reserve and doing things which will ultimately completely unravel everything? Oh, it's all about having the right process and controls. Um, you, have to, you have to put an element of trust in colleagues, but ultimately if you've got the right processes, the right controls and the right governance in place and the right oversight then um you know you can you can uh, ensure that that doesn't happen in your organization yeah. um you know for me treating customers fairly is one of the most important things that we have to to deal with in each and every one of our days and every decision we have to look through the, the lens of a client um and ensure that we are treating you know treating them fairly um so touch word you know I've, uh, I've managed to ensure that we always have had the right processes, the right controls to uh, 
to um, ensure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's great to hear. Thank you for that. And then back to a topic we were discussing before, you were talking uh, about that tragic case with John and the, the mental health issue, which, which led to the suicide. Health quotient is the next area of the eight. Um, mental and physical health and well-being. What, what are you doing, John, as president to look after your own mental and physical health? And, and how do you help create a healthy environment where, where you work? Yeah, I mean, look, on a personal level, we're a very active family. Um, as I say, we, we're very high in sports, so whether it's cricket, rugby, sorts of horse riding, dancing. I've even been known to get on the uh, on, on the, the dance machine that we have here with my daughter. Right. I tend to lose, but uh, yeah, um, I, you know, look, back on the golf course, which is good. Now they've reopened. Uh, I, I'm partial to a little bit of DIY and gardening, uh, you know, and, and clearly I get out running when I can. Uh, we got a we got a dog like most people in uh, in the lockdown, and so yeah. uh, walks with what, what have you got? What's your dog? A boxer dog. So yeah, yeah, slightly, slightly crazy, but he's yeah, uh, yeah he's wonderful. So um, yeah, look, very very active. Uh, I I could probably do a little bit better on the eating healthily. I, I'm a little bit of a, a sucker for, for fast food, but uh, my wife keeps me in check, which is uh, which is good. Um, but when it comes to corporate life, look, this has been really challenging. You know, we had to suddenly pivot this whole organisation from being in an office-based environment where we could do free fruit every day, we could have encouraged walking meetings, you could do one-to-ones walking. To suddenly everybody being at home and and you know i think definitely there was a period where we were realizing that people were literally stuck behind these things um and it was pretty pretty tough and so we've really encouraged our colleagues to turn off their screens go for walking meetings you know if you've got a, a session you don't need to be on the video or you don't need to be looking at deck by all means go for a walk go around the, the lake take the dog out for a walk uh, and dial into it so so you you encourage yourself to do that um trying to encourage that connectivity between colleagues. You know, it's, mm. it's easy to, to lose touch with someone you might have seen in the office consistently and then suddenly lose touch. So how do you do that? And, and so look, there's been a huge focus in our organization around all things mental health. Um, and, and then also giving access to colleagues where they need it to things like CBT. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, we obviously have uh, support networks as well internally that, that can help particularly a really strong family network is an example that can be there as that sounding board. If people have things that they want to talk about, you know, create that environmental buddying. Brilliant. No, thanks so much. That sounds like you're covering most of the, the bits of advice that uh, I'm, I'm seeing work in other organizations and, and from health quotient to emotional intelligence question, emotional and social intelligence. Um, that lovely manager of yours who said, I think you should be in sales. Um, saw in you that, that emotional intelligence skills that you have, that way you have with people, whether it be floor walking and chatting to people, remembering their names, their family stories. But um, not everybody has good levels of emotional intelligence. They might have high IQ, but not such good EQ. What have you done to help? You know, you're a mentor, you're a coach to many people. What have you done to help people raise their level of self-awareness and the impact of their behavior on others, mutual awareness, and reading the environment that they're in, the work environment or the, the communal environment? What have you done to help them? Yeah, I mean, um, we've worked with people like yourselves, various coaches that have come in and sort of helped um, raise awareness. I, I'm always a firm believer of 
the first thing is sort of self-realization. You've got to kind of recognize a behavior trait in yourself to do something yeah. about it. You know, there's sort of various levels and, and, you know, level zero, you've got no clue about it at all. Right the way to sort of level three, where you're actually doing something about it. Sometimes though, there's bits in the middle where you know about it, you're not doing anything about it. Um, so we definitely work with coaches to come in and kind of help and develop. Um, what I've encouraged my leadership team to do, um, and I've done for quite a long time, I run these things called, and it's a very terrible name, Mockers with Mark, um, which uh, I found, found out I don't like Mockers because it's chocolate and coffee and I don't actually like it, but that's a, a, a different debate. Um, but that's where typically I would invite a small group of colleagues to come in, normally no more than half a dozen, to kind of come in, uh, give feedback, talk about what's going on in the organization. And that enables me to kind of plug in a little bit better to the colleague base and really understand what's going on on the ground. You know, when we do these big meetings and you ask for questions, or you ask for feedback, invariably you get the tumbleweed, you know, across the floor. And I understand that behavior, but in the smaller groups, you can start to tease out the people, um, you know, what's going on, uh, you know, how people feeling, uh, what's the emotions that run through the organisation, and then start to think about our colleague agenda, uh, you know, and deal with some of those things. And I think in those sessions, some real nuggets have come out in those sessions that would have never come out in a, in a more public forum. Yeah. Um, and floor walking, as I say, is, is crucial. Skip level meetings with with individual colleagues as well. I've I've used and continue to use to to good effect. I'm quite lucky. I've done quite a lot of NLP mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in my time. So I'm reasonably good. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I'm reasonably good. Yeah. Reasonably people. Uh, me and my wife, it's funny actually, we talked about it not that long ago. We're people watchers. We go on holiday, we people watch. Yeah. Fascinated by human nature and what's yeah. going on in people's minds. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm often, uh, often reading the situation through some of the training I had way back through NLP. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned NLP. I had Bandler and McKenna who trained me for 10 days uh, from morning till night uh, with a, I mean, fascinating uh, showman. But of course you get some in sales who use that to manipulate people to get them to buy things they really don't want to buy, but you can use it in, in an appropriate way to, to tune into people. And there's no doubt about it that my two young daughters who were given an NLP course, uh, when they were, goodness, when they were about, uh, 15 and 16 uh, and it stood them in such amazing stead ever since yeah. um so so going from eq to cq cultural intelligence quotient different cultures different people different backgrounds of course it's the cq cultural intelligence is is underpinned by Im equality uh, diversity and inclusion so i know it's very important for you but what have you found that you have done to develop that for yourself and for other people so they are more understanding and accepting of difference and that you're looking for this neurodiverse uh, approach as well. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is um, curiosity. You know, I think, um, I think all too often leaders aren't curious enough. You know, I think they can often stick with what they know rather than being curious. So, you know, one of my pieces of advice that was given to me quite a long time ago was, you know, be very curious. And I think now that's what I try to impart on others. Um, it is back to the simple things we've talked about already, but you know, these floor walking and, and getting out there and just talking to people. And it's amazing the nuggets that you pick up 
in conversations that give you a broader perspective on something. Um, and, and, you know, and that can often come from the most junior colleague in the organization, you know, and, and actually that's one of the things I, one of my pet hates really, I don't really like corporate grades. You know, I, I, I think you all have a role profile and a, and a job to do. Um, I'm not really, I don't fuss whether you're X grade or Y grade, you know, um, and so curiosity for me is, is helps drive that. I think we look, we're really blessed in the organization. We have a lot of diversity networks through from, from gender, through culture, through disabilities, et cetera. And so it really does sort of open your eyes to some of the challenges that some of our colleagues face and how we make you know, wholesale change, reasonable adjustments to the organization to ensure that we're a very inclusive environment. And look, I think we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go still. Um, yeah. But I think what is good is the drumbeat in the organization is one of inclusivity. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, we are definitely making steps in, in the right direction. Great. And then from, from cultural intelligence onto uh, resilience and adversity, RQ as we call it, uh, what, what have you done to um, pick yourself up in times of adversity and setbacks? And uh, how have you had the resilience to get through some really of those tough times like the example you had before? What other examples and advice would you give people listening about greater resilience against adversity? Um, perspective, first and foremost. Put, put things back into perspective. Mm. Remember also what made you successful in the first place. So if you're having a tough time, um, remember the good times, what made it a good time, what made you successful and try to, you know, get that back into, into your day. Um, also as well, sometimes it's about your energy levels. So if your resilience is lower, it's because your energy loads drop. So for me, I said about customers, if I feel myself getting a little stressed, you know, stuff's getting a bit tough in, in, in work, best way for me to re-energize, get out and see some customers. You know, I, if I do that for two days straight, then, you know, I'm re-energized again, I can go again, I've got that resiliency. Um, but perspective for me would be the biggest thing. You know, I, equally, I, look, I like solving um, problems. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, bad days can typically be a client complaint, yeah? But I do have a mindset that I think every client complaint is definitely an opportunity. Because if you can change their perception in that moment, you've probably got a client, maybe not for life, but for, for hopefully longer than you were going in the, in the first place. So I just think, I just all too, all too often people forget what made them successful in the first place and mm. anchor back to that would be my biggest piece of advice. Yeah, great bit of advice. And um, two bits of perspective, sort of practical tips in our book on top tips for inspired leaders, a little pocketbook. Uh, we've got uh, this one here, top tips for inspiring women leaders, but uh, there's a, a generic one we have. And, and it's just the accumulation of leaders like yourself and, one of them said, um, it's the 10-10-10 perspective. How important will this issue be in 10 weeks' time, in 10 months' time, in 10 years' time? How important will it be? Put it in perspective. Yeah. And the, the other uh, perspective, that was of time, and the other perspective of, of, of uh, a viewpoint is, you know, imagine you have a friend of yours in the business who has the problem that you have. 
what advice would you give your friend if they had this problem and you write it down, the advice you give a friend, and then I get them to take it and I say, now follow that advice. And they go, oh no, come on. You know, we're all good at giving advice to everybody else of what they should do. But actually, if you're told it's advice to yourself, you won't really give it. But if it's advice to a best yeah. friend who's got that, it seems to work. Um, yeah, I, think, yeah, I think you said about resilience as well. It's back to mentors, really is. I, I, I don't want to, well, I have laboured the point. Um, I think when I have a tough time, I, I've still got mentors today. And, and it has to be someone who's outside your sphere of influence. For my, this, is, this is my advice, yeah? These are people normally not in the organisation, normally external, or certainly not in my chain of command. Um, but who you can be really honest with, just totally honest. And then that person, you need a mentor who's willing to give you the feedback warts and all yeah, yeah. yeah. And i'm blessed i mean i i work with a, a guy called roger alexander um roger is probably best described as a, as a as a legend of our industry i think he was actually personality of the year back in 2008 he's been a ceo of countless payment companies he's a non-exec director right across the uh, right across the industry he's definitely one of the, the most well-known characters in, in our industry but he his advice is always sound. He's straightforward. If he thinks I'm being an idiot, he tells me. Uh, if he thinks there's an opportunity, he'll tell me. He never tells me what to do. He just gets me to think about it and come up with the answer myself. Uh, and I've been blessed to work with Roger for a number of years. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's someone who helps me with my resilience because when you do have a tough time, I can kind of have that. I can kind of, I can release the pressure valve. Yeah, I, I think you've really brought out such an important point. You know, I, I'm a mentor to various people as well as being a coach to some, but I, the mentors that I've had uh, have been very wise and I can talk to them about anything and I know they'll tell me it. However uncomfortable it might be, I, I go, that's a really good challenge. You know, be kind to yourself or whatever it is. If you're being so hard on yourself, it's, it's very good. The last two around the compass before we talk about teams and favorite book and then the top tip would be BQ and LQ. We talked about LQ and uh, stewardship, leaving things better than you found it uh, and you rent your job. And in fact, you don't even own your kids. You're just looking after them while they're passing through your family uh, until they go off and do their own thing. Don't tell them that. Don't tell them. No, no, I know. It's, it's too much. What is that lovely saying? Uh, when I was 16, I couldn't believe how stupid my mother and father were. But now I'm 25. It's amazing how much they've learned in the intervening nine years. <laughs> but um, BQ, brand, reputation, image and impact. How, how do you get 360 feedback on yourself? I mean, you've had some good coaches over the time. Have they gathered it for you where you can really get different perspectives? Because, of course, as president, wherever you go, the toilets all smell clean and everybody tells you how nice things are. So how do you get really honest 360 feedback? Yeah, I mean, uh, brand has been very important to me. Um, my own personal brand, you know, one, you know, back to that authentic piece. I like to be known as sort of being a fair leader, approachable. Hopefully people see me as relatively uncomplicated in my style. Um, I think I can be guilty sometimes of when I'm in what we call the grip uh, 
interest scenario, can I get a little bit like the Nike brand and be a bit just do it? Uh, and that's something I have to watch out quite quite often um, and ensure that I remain sort of authentic to really who I am. Um, look, I, I've worked hard at that over the years uh, and continue to do so. And I think, you know, it's about being self-aware when it starts to slip, pull yourself back up on it, really. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, the 360 feedback piece, we run a pretty good program in Barclays. It's, it's sort of part of our DNA. We go out to uh, all people, whether that be peers, line managers, uh, you know, people that work in our teams, and we ask for 360 feedback. I think, you know, the, the, the thing that's a bit of a pet hate for me is people writing to their friends for 360 feedback, you know, and then you kind of serves no purchase. You've, you've got to be willing to write to someone who you think is going to give you some, uh, some spiky feedback yeah. Uh, and take it on the chin because otherwise it doesn't it doesn't work. Um, but we run that, you know, very religious part of our performance framework. Um, you know, so last year I I got 360 feedback from say about 12 people formally. And then as I say, back to those coffee sessions, those informances where I, I will say to people, I a very direct question, if you were in my shoes and there was one thing that I could be doing better, what would it be? Some people are brave and they tell you it's straight there are look, there are the colleagues that will be relatively politically correct and i and i don't blame them for that um but you know i'll always ask questions it's like if it as well in a public forum when you get q a i will always deliberately ask you when i finished answering the question did i answer your question and um most people say yes on occasion you get someone goes well actually no, um, but I prefer that. You know, I want to know. I've answered your question in the moment, um, yeah. and so I've. I, I again, that was a, you know, mentor that told me that's a tip to make sure. You know, be really clear. Have you answered the question that the person's asking you? Yeah, it, it's it's great you mentioned that and, and question answer. Of course, now it's all virtual and we're on video, um, but sometimes when you're together and you can do it with breakout rooms. Uh, what, I, what I found works very well, because there's always that tumbleweed moment you talked about, is to get them to break up into pairs yeah. and, and, and ask their colleague, what's the question you'd ask Mark Pedican if, yeah. if you had the chance? And then the other one says, what's the question you'd ask him? And then you can go to the pair and you say, who is your pair? What, what was the question your colleague wanted to ask? And they're happy to give the question the colleague would ask, but they won't say what their question is. And I find that a really great way of flushing people out, getting them yeah. working in pairs and talking about it. That. Please do. Please do. What's the question? So let's go on to to teams, executive teams, because my next book is going to be inspiring CEOs and their executive teams. Um, What about high performing teams and what about toxic teams? And and, and what would be a tip you you have about creating high performing teams uh, and a tip about how to handle a, a toxic individual who's making the team go toxic? What's been your experience? So... High-performing teams, look, first of all, hire the right talent. Mm. If you're the brightest person in the room, you've got a problem. So hire talent. Hire people that you know want your job. Um, Alignment, actually before alignment, sorry, vision. Set a really, really clear vision and strategy. Then get the team, the whole team aligned behind that and collaborate like hell to make it happen um on the vision think about how you communicate it so i think we spoke previously in my old office down in hampshire i used to have on my board 
communicate seven times in seven different ways. Just recognizing you can tell people the vision once, it has not sunk in. They, they've gone off and done some other things. How do you relentlessly articulate the vision in a simple way that your grandmother or your relatives could understand? Um, I learned a lot, and we did speak about this. Uh, one of my leaders was a guy called Philip McHugh. Philip's left the organization. He went on to run a couple of other payment companies. Um, high on IQ, really high on EQ as well. But, but his ability to articulate the vision and get the whole organization behind it and maintain it was the best I've ever seen, mm. frankly. And so there is definitely a part of me now that goes, if I could just be a fraction as good as that, I'll be, I'll be a happy man. But, but, but he, I, I learned from him, just communicate, communicate, communicate and stay absolutely consistent to, to the strategy. Um, I think then if you go the other end to toxic teams, that normally emanates itself from a trust issue. And so you have to have trust in teams. I'm, I'm a big firm believer of Chatham House rules. In, 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 in your management team, in a room, have the robust discussions, have the debates, the arguments if necessary. It's okay to disagree, points of view, etc. But ultimately get lined in the room. And then when you go out, you are unified. And then no retrading, no retrading. And look, candidly, you said, how do you deal with it? I think you just got to call it out. You, you cannot, a team will not succeed. It's back to the All Blacks. You know, if you've got a bad egg in your team, over time, it will fail. Um, you need everybody pulling in the same direction. And if, it doesn't mean getting rid of them, but let's just tackle it, work out, get build the trust up, get everybody aligned, have the debate, agree the party going on, and then go, 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 go. Yeah. Um, I mean, that would be my, my advice. No, and, and I think... I think there have been times when I've seen people trying to turn around someone who's a narcissistic, toxic individual. And that is the time when either people emigrate to avoid them or they have to get them out of the organization. If you had a Donald Trump in your team, it would be a little bit challenging. And you, you may find that training and development might not get all the achievements that you want, but that's another question. Let's go on to uh, the last two, favorite book and then your, your top tip. And stay on the line when we uh, finish recording and we'll have a bit of a chat, but what would be your favorite book on, or, uh, on leadership? Uh, yeah, I've given this some thought. I mean, there's probably two actually, if I may. One of you definitely heard of, one you may not have heard of. The first is The Chimp Paradox yep. by yep. Stephen Peters. Peters. Yep. So that's all about, you know, the mind has effectively three, three areas. It's got the sort of human side, it's got the computer, and then it's got the chimp. And the chimp, unfortunately, the one that can come to the fore, particularly in times of stress and, you know, creates your, your fight, flight or freeze type mentality. And it's only the human that can kind of overcome that. Um, fascinating book, so much so. Uh, I bought my children the child's version of it because uh, I think it's just an amazing read. Did it help, uh, did it help them? Yeah, 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 big time. Yeah, help, help the children. It's definitely helped me in my career when my chip gets going. Um, and so, look, recognising that we all have it, it also creates that imposter syndrome on occasions for you, which I've definitely suffered for in my career, that you look around the table and you think, do I belong? And the chimp's in your ear going, well, I'm not sure you're good enough, Mark. 
you know, but your human brain and your computer brain needs to take over in that and go, remember why you were successful type thing. So that's a great book. I love it. Uh, I've read it a couple of times and I may even read it again. The other book, and I'm going to reread it actually, uh, is a book called One. And it was written by a gentleman called Nodge Hinkins uh, and his wife, uh, Liz Blossom. And Liz actually is an executive coach who I worked with. Uh, I'm hoping Liz doesn't mind me uh, mentioning this. So Liz helped me quite early in my executive days and was fabulous. We did a lot of work together in terms of building my own sort of self-confidence and resilience, et cetera. But one is all about, it's, it's back to that self sort of realization um, and uh, perspective and, and um, how you become more self-aware effectively. Uh, at, but what's quite scary is it was written, I think, in 2008, 2009. It talks about the year 2020, which was only <laughs> last year. And some of it, it talks about what's going to happen. So I'm going to go back and read it because I want to see how much of it's come true. I think quite a lot of it. Um, yeah. That was a book that in my early sort of leadership time, um, you know, 12 years or so ago, uh, really gave me some thinking about just sort of learning a lot more about me, Mark, the leader and how I operate. Sounds great. Thank you. They're really great uh, book advices. Uh, and um, I know the Chimp Paradox and uh, I think Professor, is it Tom, Peter, Steve Peters? Steve Peters, yeah. Steve Peters. And, and I'll look up one as well because I'm always uh, learning. I hope there's an audio version of that. So let's go into you introducing yourself again, Mark, for your two minute top tip. Over to you, please. Hi, so uh, I'm Mark Pettican. I'm here uh, with Jonathan Bowman Perks on Inspiring Leadership. Uh, and these are my top tips. So I think uh, for me, it would be never compromise on talent. You know, feel threatened by those that you bring into the organization and never be the brightest person in the room. Uh, mentors from a leadership perspective play a very important role, I believe, in anyone's leadership journey and have definitely driven my career more than any other boss. And I think remember that EQ, certainly in the modern world, has a higher importance than IQ. Whether we like it or not, computers are now dealing with a lot that the human brain was dealing with previously. And emotional intelligence is the most important thing that you can have as a skill to get the best out of your teams, drive performance, create an environment where people basically want to punch through walls for you. Uh, typically, that creates longevity and loyalty in an organization. Uh, and it's definitely something that I've tried to live my leadership career by. Mark Pettigan, thank you very much indeed. A truly authentic and inspiring session, as I knew it would be. Really enjoyed that, and I know everyone listening will do as well. So, Mark, thank you for your time. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com. Or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.